Welcome, everybody, to Saving Capitalism. And I'm A.G. Osborne. I have a lot to cover today, including things that I've never shown or talked about before, like more of a detail of my investing thesis and why it works in comparison to other methods. I'm also going to talk a lot about the mode of the market versus you and what is your part, how to participate in the market, how to get exaggerated returns from the market, things that you need to do. We're also going to look at several other things about what's happening right now and where to put your focus. Now, there's a lot going on in the economy overall. Uh, as you guys know, the Saving Capitalism podcast is uh, a podcast that I created to try to help others empower themselves and to take part in this incredible machine that has revolutionized the world. And uh, that power has largely been, I believe, dislocated from Main Street. And I believe that that's a combination of a lot of different forces. It was the current forces that we have in society, or, or not forces, maybe structures, didn't quite exist in this way. It's just changed a lot in the last two generations. In order to benefit from the economy and overall progress across the world, you need to be able to participate in it. Our goal is that we allow people to directly participate into the economy through either my company or we teach them how so they can do it on their own. And we want to make sure that people have the information that they need to be investing correctly and to be making smart decisions that would allow them to be in the path of progress. Now, the first thing we need to understand is a simple analogy, how I look at things. The number one thing being with investing or my business strategies is riding the wave. What that means is that overall, we look at three components, the wave, the board, and the surfer. The wave is out of our control. So that is about understanding how waves work. That is about understanding where to be, um, understanding the wave, because you can't surf if there's no wave. Now, the surfboard is the business. So constructing the best surfboard out there that allows me to ride that wave. And then the third is the surfer. And that is you or me. And that is to be the best surfer that I can possibly be. Now, when we look at the wave, we are, of course, talking about different industry trends. Now, a lot of people um, are not in favor of the destructive nature of jobs and overall waves failing, meaning that they're protectionist. And the United States, we have become very protectionist. We have become protectionist over large corporations where they work directly in hand with the government um, and industries where we don't like to see industries fail. So then governments support them. Um, I'm very against this. I'm very against this for a lot of reasons, but mainly because it's just flat out wrong. The change happens no matter what. The government preventing it only creates the problem worse because it is not up to the government, these decisions. And those things change all the time. We have new technologies, new industries coming in. We have these things that were good use then, die out and have no practical use today. We need to allow for the destructive nature of that progress to take place. Now, that is very scary when you look at obviously investing and starting businesses. The idea that 
first of all, I have to make sure the industry's right, but then I also have to do it right. And as we know, a large portion of businesses fail and investments don't always perform, but it's not gambling. And that's very, very important to understand. Uh, keeping things very simple and looking at things and how we can allocate and move within the economy and our overall investing, if we, we have a basic understanding, the odds of us doing better and protecting ourselves financially and outperforming go way up. And then also structure to that investment thesis and sticking to it. And we'll, we'll talk about some of these and use some examples. Now, I don't believe everyone needs to be an economist, okay? Don't believe that at all. But I believe that everyone needs to understand how the economy works. I, it's, it's weird that people don't even think that that's a necessity. We go to school to learn everything about things we'll never use. That's great information, but we'll never, there's no practical use whatsoever. The world that we live in today is vastly created by us. And everything that you touch is the economy. You don't escape that. If you have a job, you need to understand how businesses make money because that's what pays you. I think modern society, especially when it comes to the economic side, has just flat gotten lazy. I want my paycheck and I want to go home and then I want to do other things. And uh, that's not a lazy and they may be working very hard. That's not what I'm saying. I'm talking about mentally lazy. They don't care to really understand in depth what is happening in the economy, why it's happening. They don't really care to understand where that end paycheck comes from. And this is a combination that it, of uh, individual, but largely systematic. The school systems failed. We, we do not teach the fundamentals and basics for an individual to succeed in a world that has been created and is created and will continue to be uh, by man. Now, these basic principles and building blocks as you can call it, of the economy, that is simply an expression of human nature. We try to dislocate these things and people act like the economy is just a vending machine. It's simply a ATM that some people have access codes to and other people don't. That's not how it works. Now, you as an individual, lots of people get overwhelmed. And I hate that because it immediately changes the nature. First of all, the lingo people use and how we go about it. And because there was no foundation taught in schools, concepts that should be mid-level or not complicated are so overwhelming that people don't even begin to take the journey. And I hope that we can help break those things down for you. And I hope that you can get a better understanding on how you can implement ideas, strategies, how you should look at your own income, your budgeting, and what you should do to progress. Most importantly, understand how this ginormous machine that creates incredible sums of wealth, freedom, progress, prosperity functions and how it functions so you can use it on your behalf. There's two sides. There is the consumer side, which is ever present, meaning that this machine has been so astronomically efficient in allowing our disposable incomes to rise, allowing our consumption to rise. Every phone in your hand, every food, three stable meals a day, the housing situation that we have, take all of it. Any line item that goes to health, wealth, physical well-being in the last 200 years is not even comparable. 
we have a survival rate that would have blown anybody's minds 150 years ago. The amount of comfort we have was unreal just 50 years ago. And the wealth and prosperity that middle-class America has, I think, was unfathomable for the entire world just two generations prior. Now, nothing's perfect and our system is definitely not. It can be destroyed very quickly and there's lots of problems in it. Now, one of the biggest problems though I think we have is people think that the system should be working for them at a certain level, regardless of what they do. And that's not true. It's not true at all. Um, the system should be evenly spread to take care of um, the market, its needs, consumers, and that prosperity should be felt from top to bottom. Now, uh, we have a problem currently that it's not, it's, it's, it's skewed. Now that skew will never go away and should never go away. Why? Because there is the element of choice. And if you want to choose to sacrifice and to give up and to go after something and build something, you should have every freedom and right to do that. And you should reap all the rewards of it. People that don't want to, that's fine. There's nothing wrong with that, but they should not have even close to the same outcome as that other person. In fact, I'm very fine with those skews to be very big, but we're in a different category. Um, and that largely comes from the protectionism that we are currently in. That's scary for me because that is the sign of uh, a fading out growth phase. Um, and we are feeling that. So the lack of growth leads to concentration of wealth, power, and that means that you protect what you have instead of actively growing it. And then that in turn comes to lobbying and working with politicians. The largest corporations in the world have almost become synonymous with, with the government. And the government in large part is working hand in hand. And I'm very, very against this. I am very, very against um, that relationship being like that at all. The relationship should be that the government steps out of the way, shows no favors, let the market do what the market does. And uh, the more involved a government gets in the economy, the more protectionism is involved. It's logical. The more involvement you have, the more people make a decision over more aspects. Someone has to make a decision and that decision will always benefit someone and hurt someone else, always. So people lobby to make sure those decisions, even slightly, are tilted in their favor. And as time goes on, that stacks and that stacks, and then we see that widespread. Uh, the markets, how they should work, this completely hurts the markets. Um, it'll, it, it stops there from being creative destruction like it needs to be. And it starts to create inefficiencies. We have seen this with every society. The larger you have a concentration in power and money, which these two things are not separate, or these two things are not the same, they're separate, but they become interchangeable because people use them together. Meaning government concentration of power and wealth concentration of power, the economy, those two people, they want the same thing, what's best for them they start working hand in hand, we have protectionism, right? At the end of the day, the higher the concentration of power in a political system, 
has the highest, higher concentration of ability to do horrible wrong things and the less power you have from citizens. So that's why in general, I am against socialism, communism, because capitalism is actually a way to keep checks and balances. The beautiful thing about the United States is the fragmented nature of the government. People don't understand. We fight in the United States and people are like, you guys fight like cats and do dogs. You're, you're so, you, you are so not efficient. You, you guys don't like each other. Like it, it's, this is a big problem you guys have. It's not a problem. It's the solution. It's because we get to fight. That's why it works. If we didn't fight, it wouldn't be working. And our society and government is predicated on fighting. The literal structure of it is, both economically and politically, the, the, the uh, separations of power in our government through not only the branches, but the individual entities of the government, how they're separated, and the powers that they have creates mass amount of fighting. While others see this as a weakness, it is a strength. The United States government is not predicated to support a people. It is very different from most countries. So if you are in, if you are in Europe, the French government, who do they protect? The French, right? German, Germany, the Germans. There's a sense of identity there of who the government's working for. The United States, we do not have that. It is we the people. It is not the Germans. It is not the French. It's not the British. It's not the Italians. It is not Brazilians, right? We the people. And we are a melting pot of divergent ideas that are all fighting for representation, that are all fighting for viewpoints that we have. That is wonderful. And anybody that tries to make America not be fighters, they're asking everyone to conform. America doesn't conform and it shouldn't. I am so anti anything that has to do with limitations on freedoms, especially freedom of speech. And what I think we've seen in the last three years is astronomically disturbing the combination of government and private sector to dictate public speech was nothing short of horrifying. It, some people say it doesn't, oh, it's not that big of a deal. Some people say, oh, it's, you know, it was for the right reasons. There is no right reasons. And this is what people don't understand. Even if it's wrong, that's okay. We have to allow it to be wrong. This idea of disinformation and people should say the right thing. Why? Because as we found out over the last three years, what the government was actually putting out was disinformation. Not all of it, but yeah, a lot of it really was. And all of a sudden we learned that, oh, the person that's deciding what we can say and directly working with private companies as we saw released on a weekly basis weekly updates, meetings, email communication on how to do things like combat disinformation, to not allow people to argue and fight and this uh, accepted narrative to be pushed out. This is all signs of protectionism. 
The companies are doing it because it's a tit for tat. We're going to do what the government wants. The government's going to protect us and we're going to get what they want. This is horrible. And the encroachments on the collaborations of the private sector, the economy with the government is very dangerous. What does this all mean to you? What does this have to do with returns, right? The point of it is, is that a fragmented economy has waves that come and go. A normal functioning economy fights, and there is a destructive nature, both politically and economically, in the path of progress. As I was, uh, I was having a conversation with someone that said, freedom, um, I said, freedom, you have to accept the good and the bad. And they said, I disagree. I don't believe that freedom means you can allow the bad. This is why it does. If not, who's deciding? If you are not okay with Donald Trump deciding what is good or bad, but you are okay with another president, Biden, whoever it is, deciding who's bad, you are a hypocrite because not everybody sees the same way you do. So, no, you can't take the bad out because your bad is good to somebody else. And we do not force or impose beliefs, but instead you need a system that looks at all the ideas, both good and bads, and eventually comes to a consensus. Now, this is cultural, economical, political. This takes time. It is a destructive process. So, politically, society and the economy, there is this nature of a destructive process. This destructive process looks messy in the economy. It looks like there's risks. We see it everywhere. There's so many risks, but guys, it's the process. The moment you start to understand this, this starts to free up a lot of your ideals. It frees up a lot of your options. When we look at the economy and when we look at our allocation of capital, when you are trying to build that surfboard, you're trying to be the best rider, you're trying to understand the waves, so often what people see as a horrible thing is the entry. That is actually the entry point. So many times when you see that perfect wave that has no flaws, that's just right, it's already too late to get on it. The wave's at its peak, it's gonna crash. You need to be uncomfortable, or excuse me, you need to be comfortable being uncomfortable. That is investing. That is the economy. And to think that that should go away, that is a wrong part of your mindset. One of the problems that we have when we talk about evenly distributed returns, progress, things like that, we're talking about getting rid of a lot of the stuff. How do you not do it? If you think that we should be equally putting out across. There's always a give or a take. Look at other countries, for example. I wrote a thing on how we are subsidizing countries to have socialized medicine. The amount of capital, which you can go on, I think it was on Twitter, I think we also have in, in, in a newsletter. The ability for individual companies to have free open trade at a fraction of the cost that allows them to get goods, services worldwide, solely predicated on the United States. The United States enforces global world trade through its Navy that allows that to take place, which it never did before. Prior to that, it didn't work because insurance cost 
costs of actually transportation, goods and service was so high, capital wasn't allocated to the sector, and the actual end result cost per product was massive. So it wasn't economically feasible to get goods that you can make so cheap there over here and keep prices relatively cheap. That means you have inflated prices. Well, after World War II, the United States created infrastructure through its military across the world to allow a new type of globalization. This let medical equipment, products, services, everything go worldwide. And taxpayers pay the, pay the bill. Um, now, the other side is, in the United States, we subsidize the low prescription cost of other nations because we pay 3x what all the other nations do in prescription cost. The reason being is our government put a rule in that, of course, was working with the uh, pharmaceutical co companies in that they cannot negotiate as a collective while another country can. So the rules that benefit driving down medical costs allow them to have cheaper medical cost, which the pharmaceutical companies could not produce unless it was the fact that the United States was paying three times that. If not, pharmaceutical uh, would actually have to rise across the world if we went down to the same level as everybody else because we are not subsidizing the bulk orders of other countries anymore. We are their margin. Now, these are two examples, um, not to mention a whole a whole lot of others, including the overall banking sector and our shoring up at the cost of our taxpayers of the country. There's all of these things. What I'm saying here is stability comes at a cost. Stability of other nations come at a cost and we pay it. And that is widely not even understood, both in their countries and also ours. Teachers aren't talking about why the comparison when you compare other countries to ours and you say, well, they have stability. We don't quite have stability. We have all these good things and they have all these good things. But not to mention, where do those good things come from? And the overall effect of the globalization, the order that was put into place by the United States. Now, I'm happy with that and I, and I think that's okay. But you have to realize there is a cost to stability. And in the United States, the more stable you get, the more uneven things get. That's how we've seen it. It always happens that way. You concentrate everything from infrastructure, decision-making, capital, and you stabilize industries, right? You stabilize products. You, uh, you stabilize risk debt, all this kind of stuff when you concentrate. That's all good. So large corporations were able to produce a lot of things due to overall, not just globalization, but their ability to concentrate capital, deploy it, but individually remove sections of the business, allocate their functionalities into more cost-effective and higher producing points. As a whole, it is centered. So the, the capital, decision-making has been centralized. They globalized the functionalities of the business. The end product drops in ability or, or in total cost. So these, these corporations did incredible, amazing things, right? Um, but then also that creates instabilities and spreads in wealth and gaps. 
which I'm okay with. I'm not okay with when countries start working hand in hand with those corporations to ensure that they can't lose, like the United States. That I'm totally against. All right. Now that we kind of have a basis and understanding for these overall waves, when we're talking about both in the economy, that destructive nature of it shouldn't be feared, but it should be understood. And when you start to understand the drivers, what actually causes waves, when they come, when they go, why do certain industries die out? Why do they peter out? What new competitive abilities coming in and what moats or protection certain industries have that really starts to change the way you look at investments. And this also has to do with individual markets. So the more infrastructure capital and everything that you have, right? People know those are safer markets. You have more demand, you have more diversity, right? Uh, the smaller the markets go, you have less of that, right? This uh, overall truth plays out in every single industry. You have separated independent um, businesses that have a smaller margin. You put those businesses together, you eliminate expenses, you get higher margins because you're acting as one, you centralize right uh, expenses and you can then put your hand in all of them, right? These are called roll-ups. This is why corporations, one of the, not why, but one of the main reasons it did. And then you also get more buying power. You get higher uh, ability to use capital. And so you can perform better as a corporation than you can as an individual. And you can actually drive down costs while doing that for end consumers. Now, at certain phases though, industries go through this, what are called low hanging fruit, meaning that industries go through margin expansions and they go through margin um, retractions. And you can actually see industries at what phases or life cycles they're in. And you can see if they are in an expansionary phase, not. Simple example that I'll give to illustrate this. Um, I wrote a large paper um, that explained a lot of this on um, uh, Twitter and our newsletter. Subscribe below, we have data. And I, I actually break down and I show in numerical form how this occurs and how this happens. But when you look at an expansion of an industry, you have a, basically you have when they're a child, an adolescent and an adult, right? And uh, if you look at storage, my industry, for example, that I was in prior to 2008, it was a child. When it became an adolescent, this is the expansionary phase of all industries. And what happened was during that, that's kicked off by um, a stabilizing force and a concentrating force of capital and risk into a handful of groups that could disperse that risk and that capital, both in operations, research, everything else in the form of REITs. And then they could deploy that to other people. You also then had a proven cycle where you could see concentration that allowed, or excuse me, proven cycle where you could actually see the effect of other markets on it, um, which lowered risk that allowed uh, insurance and banking um, to allocate a certain risk level that prior they couldn't, that allowed uh, capital to roll in. That then in turn set way for consolidation. Consolidation occurred as that power went up, operations got better. Why? Because third parties started to come in because the capital and everything else wrote in. This all had an expansionary effect on margins. Our acquisition costs through technology of tenants dropped like a rock uh, at first, We'll get into the next stage, 
Why? Due to the fact that we could uh, get rid of like our yellow pages, which cost $20,000 uh, a year and move to different marketing strategy because of our new vendors that were in the industries. And it dropped that to a fraction of that. I mean, you're talking literally 10% of that. Um, and that also allowed us to increase demand. Therefore, um, rates went up. And so all of these things together created massive uh, expanding margins, which we call intrinsic value. So this, this part of the gross phase focused on the intrinsic value. Intrinsic value equals revenue. All we're talking about is the value associated with the actual income, what it produces. That's what I call intrinsic value. That went up. Net margins rose. Um, this consolidation phase, the money coming in, the vendors, the infrastructure to the industry is that adolescence phase. You can tell because everybody's excited. Everybody looks awesome. They're all making money. Everybody feels good. Um, and then that phase ends. Um, that phase ended for self-storage. They're now an adult, uh, an adult. Self-storage just got kicked out of their parents' house. They have to be successful on their own. And this is represent. Uh, representative of a change in the value. Uh, oh, excuse me. So prior during the adolescent phase, you also have the other form of value, which is um, extrinsic. That is purely price. Cap rates were compressed due to demand. Investors wanted more. Everybody wanted more. That meant the value and the price of the asset went up. Cap rates went down. Cap rates go down. Prices go up. That's the relationship between those two. So all of a sudden, owners had intrinsic value rising while extrinsic value was rising. What that meant was you had a massive, massive spread in performance. When you looked at all the other real estate assets, the stock market, everything else, it outperformed everything. It's in its adolescent phase. Revenue growing, margins growing, demand increasing from investors, cap rates dropping, which makes prices rise. Owners were doing awesome. Also, the next thing we can see that triggers this is it's widely spread. It's not concentrated. So there is no, well, this market's good. So we're going to give this one a low cap rate and its incomes are rising. And this market is bad. So it's not going to have as high a price. Its margins aren't doing as well. That didn't happen. It was all of them, all of them at once across all markets. Cap rates dropped. Revenues went up. Occupancies went up. That is not normal. That is not a normal functioning matured market. Normally value would be very predicated on the individual things going on within that business or market. Well, this, it wasn't. Everything just went straight up. Now, this allowed bad players to exist. This allowed people that didn't know what they were doing to get really rich and to look really good. You have people that made whole businesses out of buying in small markets in the middle of nowhere, and all of a sudden their cap rates dropped and they were able to increase rents at levels never before seen in these small teeny markets. And they look like geniuses and not even understanding what was occurring and when the next shoe was about to drop. It dropped. As the Wall Street Journal just put out, uh, self-storage had the largest rate drops um, ever seen in history. And I'd put out the self-storage bubble two years ago, which explained exactly this. I said, this is coming. This is exactly what will happen. All I was explaining is that this, this industry was going from a, an adolescent to a mature industry, which means values would actually be predicated on fundamentals and that the market as a whole would no longer work together, all just rising. It would be disallocated. The cost associated with customer acquisition 
had tripled in four or five years, consolidation amongst big players and mid-sized players, mom and pops dropping, created um, inefficiencies and competitiveness. And the market was about, and the market could do all of, or didn't have to worry about any of that as long as capital was high, or capital, excuse me, cost was low. The moment that we got out of a fake world where capital was free and went into a new world where capital was not free, in fact, it went up, uh, that industry got hit on both sides, both sides, intrinsic and extrinsic, meaning that the housing market didn't drop, it froze, it stagnated, right? Which I talked about, and I showed the charts and how why that would happen. And then that, that freezing, over 45% of our customers actually come through uh, moving. So people stopped moving. That means demand went down. Now, rates had literally doubled like every three years. It was some astronomical number, right? You, you had a two-year period where rates went up 40%. Um, now you have an industry that cap rates are at all-time lows, rents are at all-time highs. That was the tip. And that's when I wrote the piece. And I said, these things will change. Why? Because when capital costs adjust, cap rates rise, and they will rise particularly more aggressively in areas that shouldn't have had low cap rates to begin with. They shouldn't have been getting those prices. And then rents were going to fall due to a more adjustment back into normal functioning demand, a return to normal, which we had gone for three, four years at 96% occupied on average. Prior to that, the highest was like 86% in the history. Those would all return to normal and assets were going to have to perform on their own. The market wasn't just going to give it to them anymore. They got kicked out of the house. They got to go get a job. They got to make a living. And um, that results in a major market shift. Self-storage matured. And the people that bought at those super high rent prices and those low cap rates are now in a very, very hard situation. Um, and lots of people, including very large players that had raised hundreds of millions, they talked as if it would never end. And you could tell because over 80% of all the new people into that industry or excuse me, over 80% of all syndicators, capital raisers in the industry were new in the last five years. They had no concept of a recession. They had no concept of how things changed. And um, that is also a sign of an adolescent industry moving into a mature industry. Now, what does that mean? When we look at that, it means it's now going to be a normal industry. Does that mean the industry is over? No, not at all. But a maturing industry that turns into a old industry that goes into like, uh, you know, moving from being adult to the nursing home. Well, that is like retail. Retail's not gone. People, you know, retail's not dead, but it's in the nursing home, right? So we're not in that phase. We just, self-storage entered into the phase with all the other real estate asset classes, right? Where normal economics, competitiveness, um, valuations, it's, it's not just going to be given and you can't be stupid and just make money. Um, those is, that's a perfect example though, of the wave. It was a wave we identified prior to 2008. We had no concept on timing, but we said, Hey, we can really focus on intrinsic value. So what we did, and I have this in the numbers and illustrations, which once again, I'll, I'll put this all in our newsletter so you can, you can see it. Um, we looked at overall deals. We're not talking storage. We're talking deals at all. And I break down the intrinsic part, meaning income, the extrinsic part, meaning uh, cap rates as we're dealing with commercial real estate. And we, we we broke it up and said, all right, how do these things affect change in net profit or return? They're not the same. And 
the, the difference is actually, I think, wildly misunderstood. So my underlying thought process when I was building Bitterroot and we were taking our company out and we were, we were going to expand and grow was twofold. We'd had small assets then small markets that we focused on intrinsic value. Now, intrinsic value was really good in those assets, meaning we could really do a lot and raise prices. This is true with any commercial assets, everybody. We're not talking in storage in general at all. But when we looked at that, that was great. But what they lacked was the ex extrinsic value. Perfect example of this. Um, first tier markets are very strong on extrinsic value because they're very solid, right? Um, recessions, up markets, cap rates don't really change when you're in Southern California or New York City because there's so much demand and there's so limited ability to uh, be built and add new supply um, that they hold their values very, very well. They don't, they don't change at all. Now, on that note, though, that means that their intrinsic value is very, very low. You can't get a lot of movement up in rates. They're peaked out. They're very efficient markets that prices. So you get a very strong extrinsic market, but you give up on the intrinsic side. Now, if you go to a small market in the middle of nowhere, you get a huge amount of intrinsic upside, but you get very little extrinsic, almost nothing. Um, you could literally be in a position where you can't sell your asset. And what we had happen was that people bought in these markets thinking they could refi or sell their asset at a low cap rate and still thinking probably that market's available. And now I'm on the phone with people that are having a very rude awakening where they said, my asset that was worth 1.5 million six months ago is worth a million today at best, even if I can sell it even though income didn't change. And that's what we show in this breakdown. So um, what we show is how value is affected by intrinsic versus extrinsic. So what we do is we look at, all right, you have two different periods and the change within those periods. So income changes, how it affects value is basically income goes down or up at the same rate. The spread, the change is identical. So if it, the income drops, if you have 100,000 and it drops to 50,000, that's a negative, you know, 111%. If you have it go from 100,000 to 150,000, that's a positive 111%. That value with the income obviously is directly correlated down and up because it's the same amount. Now, if you look at income and move to cap rates and say the cap rate correlation, um, cap rates go up 200 basis points or go up two percentage points or they go down two percentage points, it's not the same, even if income stays the same. So cap rates don't have that inverse effect. And uh, that is a very interesting point, which you can see. But what really, really matters and what I try to show people and our investors is that the inverse changes. This is big, everybody. Meaning that if you have an asset that your income goes up, down, excuse me, but the market goes up, so if you went from $100,000 to $50,000 in income and a six cap to a four cap, you have a negative 55% negative return. Now, if you inverse that and say income went up from 100,000 to 50,000, but cap rates went from six to 8%, right? You're actually positive on that. The relationship between these two are different. Now, understanding and seeing how markets were affected by this and seeing this different effect on 
Markets that had downward pressure on cap rates, upward pressure on which were mostly merging markets, and then that effect on intrinsic. What I learned was both intrinsic and extrinsic value play a role, and I want both of them. And what I found was that if I did just intrinsic value, so all we did was increase that income, right? From 100,000 to 150,000, we got 111% return. Markets stay the same. Now I looked at, okay, if we held it and nothing changed at all on the income, but cap rates went from a six to four, I got 111% return. So both of those things generated 111% return. Now, if I had income go up and cap rates go down, it was a 277% return. This shows the massive degree in performance predicated on this exact same inputs and their effect on your overall returns. What I, what we were doing was really good with individual assets turning them around. We were getting a great return, but we were missing a huge piece of it. So instead then we started analyzing markets that their extrinsic value was going to be favorable, even though we couldn't control this. And so what we did is we structured deals in a way that allowed us to take advantage of extrinsic value well, in the long term, but short term, we focused everything on intrinsic value. And that in return led us to returns that outperformed the market by far, but also outperformed storage. It outperformed even what I thought we could do um, because those two things, cap rates going down, income going up, that spread is like leverage. This was due to understanding the wave, right? building an incredible surfboard and being the best surfer. You can so dramatically outperform markets when you do this, right? And this right there, everybody, that's our entire thesis. That's exactly what we do. Now, we have lots of data now that goes to that. We're looking at individual properties. We're, they're, they're, it's not like it's one, two, three, right? We're, each one of those things we're working on constantly. And it, a lot of work and everything goes into it. It's, it it, it, it's a ton and it's been years, but um, it was from simply identifying. Now, if you look at markets, I strongly believe that individuals can address a few things. If I find a market where I say, all right, I know that there's still inefficiencies in the market. This is why I love storage because there's still value inefficiencies. And so I can still find markets that are changing and that's, that's occurring in. While I can still find assets, that I can change that in because 50% are still mom and pops. That's why I didn't go into other asset classes where there were very few mom and pops and cap rates were very evenly spread because each one of those things then were dampered and I got a, a nominal in, uh, overall industry average market average return. Now there's downsides to do what I do. The stability. Ours is so predicated on focusing on intrinsic value or income. It's so predicated on that. Why? Because remember, if I have an asset that income goes up and the market goes down, so I actually, the mar I lose to the market, but I still rise my income up, my value is still up. I still get a 55% return. Now, if you inverse that, that's not true. So if the market goes up, but my income doesn't, I actually lose money. So our, 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 we, we try to be on the right wave, but it's not predicated on us getting even that wave right. So what that means is that if we did our one thing that we did really, really good well, and we focused all on that, that we were safe even if the, we, we got great returns, even if the wave didn't come. 
But what that meant then was we had to find properties and things. It became a value-add project. That meant our, our upfront returns, year one, two, and even three, are lower. But then our um, year four, five, and six returns were way higher. Um, so that was the offset, right? As opposed to buying a mature, stable asset that just cash flows, it does really well, we're increasing both equity and income. So it's, it's more work. We're willing to do the work. It takes more knowledge. We built a company around doing that. Um, and we're okay with that. Obviously, I want the aggregate return, not the individual quarterly return. That's that's not nearly as important because trading stability, um, you trade that, that aggregate return. Um, now, when we look at any market, the key here is if you can identify and say, this is this is an industry that is going through a phase in which it will do better. The whole industry, margins is getting better. It has the economic forces that's building up this wave and this wave will do really, really well. Um, then you can say, now I wanna find the best surfboard. So what company has the best thesis, has the best ability to do that thing? Then you find leadership that are the best at that thing and you put money behind them. Um, essentially, we just, what we're describing is the key to outperforming. And you don't even have to do it. All you need to do is identify those three things. And it's not nearly as complicated as people make it, that make it seem, but it does take time. So you can't control all those extrinsic things or time. So you need to be okay, right? With more time for things to play out. Um, Long-term investing. Short-term is a totally different thing. You don't have those, those things. Now, when you're looking at countries, everybody, the same thing happens. Which countries have long runways? Which countries have the best surfboard? And which country have the best surfers? The United States still beats all countries. Why? Because our geography and our economic makeup by far is the best wave. Hence the reason why over a trillion dollars come into the United States from outside. People continue to pour their money here, not elsewhere. Now, the second thing is the surfboard. Our divisiveness, our fighting, our structure of power allows that surfboard to be the best because it puts it in the hands of the people. We can move fast. We have destructive uh, progress and we, uh, uh, we have an economy that moves. In the short terms, people though, that can be rougher, but in the long terms, it's not comparable. And then people, we are the number one in migration in the world. People still flock here from everywhere around the world. So we are a pool for people, the brightest, the best, they come, they fight. We have the fighters. We have the people that look, that say, if I wanna do something big, I can come here. So even on a country standpoint, if I'm judging, all right, well, who are you betting on? Are you betting on Switzerland or the United States? Well, the outcome that I bet on Switzerland, not the United States, would be that, oh, it's all gonna fail. Okay, well, that's more stable. But outside that, it's the other one. And when you look at especially the whole landscape and what goes on. Now, all of this to say, everyone, it's messy, it is not smooth, it is not easy. And it's not supposed to be. There will always be bad. Investing is the same. You need to be comfortable being uncomfortable. And that changes the way we look at capital allocation. It changes how you should build a business and how you should structure it, short-term short versus long-term. How you actually ride the wave, where you're positioned in it. 
And then also what skill sets you need. If you can build out that framework, move into it, focus on those three things, pick the right location, meaning the right city. And why do you think capital is fleeing places like New York, California, and merging into markets that you wouldn't think that it should be? And if you look at the progress and results of those markets where that stuff's going, it's astronomical. So even on a state basis, the state's difference in performance are huge, right? It's not rocket science. Go where the performance is better. That's a better local wave. Then when you look at the overall industry that you're in, right? Are you getting into big box retail centers while there's the entire internet is changing, is changing the way we distribute products, the way we do all of that. That, that wave that is so perfect and d doing great, the headwinds are not going to be stopped, first of all. They're way outside the control of anybody, and they are not aligned with the overall performance, meaning it did topped out. So your gains to your losses are not equal in that situation. So then you look at those industries. Then you go find those companies, and then you go find those peoples. You want experts. Now, you're not going to agree with all the people. That's another thing you got to understand. The best performer doesn't mean you agree with them, okay? It means they're the best performer. And this was something that was hard for me to learn. I thought, okay, you're really good at this and stuff, but I have different viewpoints of you and I don't agree with you on some stuff. And then most people, we invest with people we like. That is wrong. It's a bonus and I do invest with people I like, but that can't be the determining reason. They need to be the best surfer, right? Uh, and they need to have created the best surfboard. All right, everybody. Those three things are the three things that will allow you to outperform the market. And focusing and getting better on all those three things, at least identifying it, will result in dividends for your whole entire life that will just keep paying. You're going to get better. You'll become a better surfboarder. You're going to get a better surfboard. You're going to identify waves. This day, waves are over here. This day, they're not. It's going to change, and you can get better and improve all those things. Now, when you're looking at the news, when you're looking at returns, when you're looking at all of those things, break it down. Those three things. These three little things are like leverage. They end up having huge changes on results. Now, we break down all those numbers and everything in my newsletter. Go down and follow along. We are looking at all three of these individual buckets. It's everything we focus on, whether that's investing in business or real estate. It's how I allocate my capital personally. It's how I allocate my investors' capital. Um, and it's with that long-term focus. Things can change in the short term. They're going to. I expect it to. So I make sure that I structure things to last for the long term. So check it out. Go down. If you're listening to the podcast, you can watch this on YouTube. You can also go and get the newsletter and start reading that because we have big updates coming um, on our latest one. Thanks, everybody.